Thanks for joining us today. Our church exists to give everyone, everywhere, every reason to know Jesus. You can learn more by connecting with us on Facebook at Journey Fellowship Denton. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy today's message. James chapter 4, we're going to get there in just a second, but this being Halloween week, um, sometimes called a holiday, but really Halloween week, Halloween is not a holiday. Hol- holidays are holy days. Halloween is an unholiday. And it takes its roots from, from uh, an ancient pagan tradition called Samhain, which means, uh, which means a festival of the dead. It's in Hispanic cultures, they celebrate uh, El Día de los Muertos, which is the Day of the Dead. And, and they celebrate. Why, the reason for Halloween is that back in ancient times, the ancients believed that on Halloween, the time of harvest, the ending of harvest, was when the veil between the living and the dead was the thinnest. And then the dead would come and they would, they would try to be a part of the living world once again. And that's why you wore costumes and that's why you, you know, uh, tried to hide yourself from these uh, spirits or whatever they might be. And uh, they marked darkness because darkness was going to approach the, the, the world. Well, I'll just tell you, that's why we're doing light the night. Because we don't want to have darkness overrule. We want to bring light into the world. We want to pull heaven down. We want, to, we want to not have fear, but we want to have fun. We don't want to be frightened, but we want to develop friendships. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. We are not about celebrating the darkness. We're about celebrating the light. And so this week, if you're a volunteer, be ready to share the light in our parking lot as people come through. Share the light and wear a coat because it's going to be a little brisk on Tuesday night. And in that idea, James, uh, that I talked about last week, I'm going to continue that. It's the idea that James brings up in chapter 3 when he says, look, there's either one of two ways that you're living. You're either living pulling heaven down or you're living pulling hell up into your life. Look at James chapter 4. He continues this theme. James chapter 4 verse 1, he says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? That's a pretty good answer or question. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, what he's doing is he's describing chapter 3, verse 15, that hell up life, a life that's earthly, that's unspiritual, that's demonic. It's the hell up life. And James says that when you live that hell up life, that there is going to be consequences that will occur in your life. Let me just encourage you, parents. I know you got your kids with you. Look, if they, if they, are a little rowdy, it's okay, all right? But you're teaching them. We're modeling to them. So parents, don't get nervous if your kid's kind of moving around or, or, you know, you have to shush them a little bit. That's what it's about. You're teaching them. That's why we have family worship. That's why our, our kids need to see what it's like to be in church. It's, they need to see their parents worshiping God. They need to see their parents responding to the Word, all right? 
So don't sweat it, all right? Don't sweat it. It won't bother me if it won't bother you. So James says this life, this hell up life, has consequences. And when you live hell up, the first thing that you see in this passage is that when you live hell up, there will be constant conflict in your relationships. When you're pulling hell up in your life, you tend to pour hell out on everybody else around you. Am I right? You, you pull hell up, you pour hell out, you pour hell out in your marriage, on your kids, you pour out on your coworkers, on your friends. You're giving them hell, they're giving you hell, and a little bit of hell is going all the way around. Because you're pulling it up into your life. You're bringing it up, and you're pouring it out. And James points this out. He says, look, in your spiritual life, when you're in your spiritual life, your spiritual life will always manifest itself in your relationships. Your relationship with God is directly related to your relationship with other people around you, whether it's your spouse or your friends or your kids or your coworkers or whoever it might be. Why is that? It's because God is a relational God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, He's built in Himself together a tight relationship of formative life. God is relational, and Satan seeks to destroy everything. And how he does that is when we pull hell up into our life, he can destroy our relationships because of the decisions we make to pull hell up instead of pull heaven down. That doesn't necessarily mean you're living worldly, but it does mean that you're making a decision of who's going to win. And he asks this question, and here's a great question. He gives them a quiz. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, that's a great question to ask. Is there anybody in this room who has not had an argument, a fight, a disagreement, or any kind of uh, issue with someone else over the past year? You have not. Please raise your hand. Whoever was going to raise their hand this morning, I was already committed. You're going to be hired to be my personal assistant and the official church counselor for the rest of your life. The great thing is, 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 is he asks this important question and then he goes on and he says, what's the root cause of that question in this rhetorical question? What causes fights and quarrels? Look at it in verse, in verse one. And he says, he says, don't they come from what your desires that battle within you? You want something and you don't get it. How many of you ever stopped your kids from fighting and the first thing your kid kid does, and when I asked my kids, this is, it was always the same answer. Hey, what's, what are you doing? You guys cut it out. Well, she started it. He started it. You know, it's a good thing that when James asked the question, what causes fights and arguments among us, that he didn't ask us to answer that question? Because if we would have answered that question, we would have said, hey, it's the other person. Every fight in my life, it's because of them. And then we start listing, well, it's because this is what they've done and this is how they offended me and this is what they did in the past and blah, blah, blah. That's what we're going to do. We're going to say it's all their fault. And what does James say? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it your own desires? Oh, man. James shines the spotlight right back on us. He shines it back on us. I know that that's uncomfortable. 
Because you know what? The light shines right back at me too. He shines that light on our own hearts, on our wants, on our attitudes, on our thoughts. He says, look, the reason why you're fighting and you're quarreling, it's coming from within you. Don't point at the other person. Don't blame the circumstance. Don't blame what they've done. Look in yourself first. Don't they come from your desires? That word desires is the word in, in the Greek... It's, it's the word hedone, hedone, which is where we get the English word hedonistic. It's the root word for hedonistic, hedone. Hedonistic basically is the idea that says, if it feels good, do it. If it feels right, then just do it. If you want it, then take it. And if you can't get it, fight for it, fight over it, quarrel over it, argue over it. Whatever you want, just do it. You know, this time of year with Halloween and everything, we're alerted to the occult. You know, and there are two understandings of Satanism. One understanding is, is the organized uh, Satanism. It's your witches and it's your covens and it's your real, you know, these things. That, and I'll just tell you, those are real things, folks. It's not something that you can buy at some store. This is a real thing. There's organized. But then there's simplified satanic work. Simplified satanic work is described by the occultist Aleister Crowley from the 19th century when he says this, Do what thou wilt is the whole order of the law. In other words, what he says is that whatever you want to do to satisfy yourself, just do it. Whatever you decide, do it. If you want to drink that, drink that. If you want to smoke that, smoke that. If you want to sleep with him or sleep with her, just do that. If you want to hit that, hit, just do it. If you want to yell, do that. Because whatever you want, that's what you should do. You see, when you feed your passions and you don't starve them, you're fulfilling the work of the devil in your life. Now that's strong, isn't it? But listen to what 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Not only are the things that the devil does devilish and satanic, but you can be used to do those things. You can be a part of it. You can join in on that. That's that pulling hell up attitude. And here's the important reality that I want you to see in just this first couple of verses. That the greatest threat to your life is you. Me. It's not the other person. Your greatest threat is you. A couple of weeks ago, I saw in the news, and many of you have probably heard this, there was an Alaskan Airlines flight that had to do an emergency landing. How many of y'all you know, heard that story? He had to do, he had to do an emer, they had to do an emergency landing because there wasn't a terrorist in the cabin. The terrorist was in the cockpit. An off-duty pilot was an Alaskan pilot set in the, in the jump seat. So and not the pilot or the co-pilot, but there's a jump seat in the, in, the, in the actual cockpit. And he sat in there. Well, he was, getting a, he was deadheading back to his home base. He had been in Portland, and here's the story. He was 27 years 
a tenured pilot, always had an exemplary record. And so he goes to Portland and he does stupid for just a few seconds. He decides he's going to eat some psychedelic mushrooms. And, he, and he, after that happens, he gets onto this plane in the, in the jump seat. He's not flying the plane. He's just catching a ride back to his home seat. And he loses his mind and he tries to pull the, the fire uh, extinguisher on the engines, which immediately shuts the engine down and turns an airplane into a rock and they fall. And they had to, they had to subdue him and then put him to the back, put handcuffs on him all because he did stupid for a few moments. Our greatest threat is not usually what's out in the cabin. Our greatest threat is usually what's happening in the cockpit. That's where the danger usually comes in in our lives because of our desires, the things that we want, the things if we, that we desire. You know, I've talked to a lot of people and they say, you know what, I know how I could solve my problems. If I just had a different husband or a different wife, it'd be better. If I could just move to another town, my li- all my problems would be solved. If I could just change jobs... And you know what's happened? And so many people that I've heard that say to, they actually do those things. And every time they do it, guess what? Hell seems to find them every time. You know why? It's because wherever they go, there they are. The danger wasn't around them. The danger was inside of them. You know, there's some people who, they're just argumentative with everybody. And they blame everybody for it. Well, he's just a hard person to get along with. Really? Everywhere you go, you have a fight. Every person you talk to, you quarrel with. Why? It's because wherever you go, there you are. It's not the outside. It's the inside. It's the desires that you have on the inside. And that's what James says. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Doesn't it come from your own desires? When you don't get what you want... He goes on and look what he says. He says, you want something, but you don't get it. So you kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. And so you quarrel and fight. That's what we do, isn't it? We don't get what we want. We're told that you can't have what we want. And what do we do? We go after it anyway. Right now, at this very moment, behind the stage in the nursery, One of your kids has grabbed the toy of another kid and they are yanking on that toy and they're, they're, they're starting to cry and they're pulling and they're screaming and there is a nursery worker back there trying to get between these two little ones that are, that are getting, trying to get what they want because I want it and I'm going to take it. I heard one person say that the only difference between a two-year-old and a terrorist is their size. It's about right. That's it. (laughs) You don't get what you want. You can't have what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You try to get it anyway. Why? It's because the worldly desires that you have will always go public. Look, that's what happens. Private passions will always become public problems. Make public appearances. Your private passions will always make public appearances. Why? Because you're going to quarrel and fight till you get what you want. 
but I've got some good news for you. You didn't get out of bed in this cold day just to hear that. You want to hear some good news. Here's the good news. Jesus did not just come to save you from hell. He came to save you from yourself. Now that's good news. He came to save you from you being you. He came to save you from the desires that you have in your heart. Here's how he does it. Not only does he forgive us, but he gives us, he makes us completely new. He replaces these hell up desires that we have with heaven down desires. He takes our old heart and gives us a new heart. He takes our old nature and gives us a new nature. He takes the old spirit and gives us the Holy Spirit. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, it says, Paul says, those who live according to the, to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And then he goes on in Galatians 5, 16, he says, if you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Jesus didn't just save you from hell. He saved you from yourself. He gave you new desires, new wants. Here's how I know when someone truly has an incredible encounter with Jesus and they're saved and they know it. It's because when you look at their life, they don't do what they used to do and they don't want what they used to want. Come on, somebody. That's how I know somebody has truly been encountered with Jesus Christ in their life. Before I was born, I was told that my grandpa, that I loved dearly, was a terrible whiskey drunk. He drank whiskey and it made him angry, made him angry. And, and because he drank so heavily, he poured hell out on his entire family. But one day he met Jesus. And from what I saw and from what I was told on that day that he met Jesus, the bottle of whiskey was gone. He replaced that instead of having, I was told he had a bottle of whiskey, a fifth that would always sit on the, on the uh, dining room table, the little breakfast table. That was replaced with the Bible. And every morning he would wake up and he would read that Bible. From that day that he met Jesus, he didn't ever have another drink. He said he didn't even want it. The idea of it even made him sick. That's how I know this man truly had an encounter with Jesus Christ. What he used to want, he didn't want anymore. What he used to do, he didn't do anymore. That, my friend, is good news. Jesus saved him not just from, from hell in forgiving of his sins, but he saved him from himself, from destroying himself, his life, his health, and his family. That's what Jesus can do. James says, look, when you want what you want, and you don't get it, and you fight, just remember Jesus. He can change you. And he goes on. Look, look, look at else what he says. He says, you don't have because you do not ask God. One of the signs of a hell-up life is there will be an absence of prayer. Prayer will be missing. Or it will be wrongly motivated. You know, rather than demanding and fighting and arguing with people, your spouse or your kids, in that moment, if you would just take two seconds and you would say these words, why don't we just pray right now? Can I just tell you, the fight will stop. Can we pray? 
Okay. I'd really like to fight, but I think praying's a better idea. Yes. Can I just give you some perspective this morning? The Father only gives good gifts. That's what He says in chapter 1, verse 7. The Father only gives good gifts. The Lord will only give you good gifts. And the reason why you don't have is because you don't ask. Tell your kids right now, say, quit asking me for stuff and start praying. You know. <laughs> right? Right, Aaron? <laughs> Stop asking me. Ask Jesus. Parenting 101 right there. Yeah, yeah. I knew I'd get some applause. That one. Listen, only good gifts come from the Father. Everything. Here's here's great perspective. Everything that's good in your life, you know where it came from. It came from Him. Everything that's good came from Him. That's what the Word of God says. Whatever you have that's good in your life, it came from Him. You say, well. Pastor, I've had some bad things in my life. Where'd that come from? Matter of fact, I prayed about it. Still had to walk through some bad times. When I was a kid, I remember one Christmas, we were opening up presents. And there were several boxes with my name on it. And my mom slid those to me. And she said, I want you to open these first. And as I started opening, I was so excited, man, because I knew what I'd been asking for for Christmas. And I was opening it up, and I started getting things open. And the first box, it was a big old box, and it was into another little, littler box, and then another littler box, and, little, and finally I got down to a box that's about that size. And I opened it up, and it was batteries. And I was like, mm, okay. And I tossed them to the side, and I went to the next gift, and it was the same thing. I opened it up all the way down, and I got to the bottom. It was another set of different size batteries had some D batteries and some double A batteries. I'm like, yeah, great job, Santa. Right? Then after I'd opened all, I got all these, I got this stack of batteries, you know, and there's like, oh, Merry Christmas. I'm like, yeah, Merry Christmas. Then dad pushes this other box toward me. He said, here, open this one, son. I open up the box. It's a remote control car. Big, huge, awesome thing with, of course, a remote control that goes along with it. Here's what, here's what you need to see. You don't have because you don't ask. Sometimes we ask and the Lord gives us the batteries first. You get the batteries first. You say, what? I didn't ask for this. Anybody ever been there? God, this is not what I... What, what are you doing here? I don't need this. And the father's sitting upstairs going. You need it. You're going to need it. Lord, I don't, I don't need patience. Jesus, do you see this? These people. 
We get the batteries sometimes. We say, God, this is what I need. I need this in my life. I need this in my life. And he gives us what we need before we get the thing that we want. That's how it works. But you have to pray because every good gift comes down from the Father. We don't know what order they're going to come, but He will give us. Everything that's good in your life comes from the Father. James says you don't have because you don't ask. My friends, listen, if you want more good in your life, you've got to ask the one who is only the giver of good. There's a limitation to everything else that everybody else can provide, but God never runs out of resources and He never runs out of good. If you will ask Him, He will give you what you desire. He will answer you without you understanding maybe what you get first, but later on you will understand. He also says that we sometimes we can pray, but we can pray with the wrong motives. Look what it says. You don't have because you ask with wrong motives. You ask with motives that just to fulfill your pleasure. Here's what you need to see. 25% of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament talks about investing your life and not wasting your life. In other words, what Jesus is talking about, he's saying, look, I'm your fiduciary and I want to explain to you what it's like to be a good steward of life. Sometimes when we pray and we don't get what we want and the Lord says, wait a second, wait a second. You asked and I gave it to you, but you didn't use it the right way. It goes kind of like this. Oh, God, I need more money. And the Lord says, I've already given you more money. You spent it on the wrong things. Do I need to keep going? Right? You ask with wrong motives. You don't have because you're asking for the wrong things. Oh, God, I am just tired. I'm frustrated. Lord, I am wore out. I'm burned out. I'm spent. I've given you more time. You're just spending it in the wrong way. You're doing things I haven't asked you to do, and that's why you're so exhausted physically in your body. Come on, somebody. You ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasure. We live in a culture that doesn't sleep enough, that spends too much, that's exhausted, that's overworked, that's burnout, that's frustrated and tired, and we blame God because He's not answering our prayer. Maybe we need to look at Psalm 34, 7, where it says that we should delight ourselves in the Lord. Now look at the first part. Delight yourself in the Lord. Now that doesn't mean, oh, delight myself in the Lord. Delight, delight. What does it mean to delight myself in the Lord? It means that I love what the Lord has and what He will give. And look what it says. And if I delight myself in everything that He has and all of His commands and all of His, and all of His, desi- His, His wishes for me, then He will give me the desires of my heart. That has been so misinterpreted. We think, oh, if I'll just come to church and do the, do the Christian thing, then the Lord's going to give me everything I want. Wrong. The Lord will give me the desires. Do you see the difference? It's not the Lord will give me whatever I want. It's the Lord's going to give me the right wants. He's going to make me want the right things. Not get what I want. He's going to replace my desires with His desires. Isn't that good? 
Delight yourself in God and he'll give you the right things to ask for. And that's why you'll ask and you'll receive because Jesus says that if you ask in accordance to my will, you can receive it. And you can say to anything, maybe it's a mountain, get out of my way because you're asking according to his will because your desires have become his desires. So when you're living that hell up life, prayer's usually missing or you're wrongly praying. So in exasperation, look at verse 4. In exasperation, James uses the strong language of hell up living. He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Another minute, strong language. A friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. God's description of a confessing heaven-down person who's living a hell-up life, God's description and tag and word for that person is an adulterer. That's that's strong. That's strong medicine this morning. Oh, I'm I'm at church today. But Monday, you're pulling hell up into your life and spreading it around. He uses this idea of marriage. Shannon and I are in a Christian marriage. In the summer of 1991, I asked this beautiful lady, you want to go get a Coke? It turned out being a cup of water because I'd left my wallet. Don't remind me. But for the last 27, 28, 27 years, we have been in relationship. It's a relationship that the Bible calls a covenant relationship. You see, our relationship is unique. It's different. My relationship with her is different than my relationship with anybody else in this room. It's unique. It is sacred. It is, it is me and her and God. And that's who this relationship all is about. It is about covenant. It's special. And we give 100% to that. In marriage counseling just this week, I said, look, marriage is not a 50-50 proposition where you're doing 50% and they're doing 50% and you might total up 100. No, marriage is 100% all the time from each person. You're giving 100%. You've got to work on it all the time. And anything outside that this covenant relationship, the Bible calls adulterous. See, in the Bible, Jesus is compared to as a groom and the church or the people of God are compared to as the bride. And God wants this relationship, like you see in a marriage, to be a covenant relationship. It's about fidelity. It's about loyalty. It's about staying together. It is a special, sacred relationship. But here's the, here the thing. And, it, and it, right there in verse 4, here's the problem that I see in American Christianity in our culture. People don't want a covenant relationship with God. They want a friends with benefits relationship with God. We don't want a covenant relationship. I want a friends with benefit relationship. In other words, I want to get all the things that I want from you without having any commitment to you. 
I want, an ex- I, want a, I want a non-exclusive relationship. I want a relationship that's not about covenant. It's about convenience. The fourth thing that you see in that hell up life that James describes in chapter 4 is that our relationship with God is based on convenience rather than covenant. Can I just tell you that God will never allow a friends with benefits relationship? God only does one kind of relationship, and it's covenant relationship. It's a relationship about one God and one God only. It's a relationship that says, look, I am your, your direction. I am your purpose. I am your center. You say, well, you know what? In our society, it just, that seems so demanding, so controlling, so intolerant. Let me tell you something. The reason why people think that about the relationship with God is because they don't understand love. Love, the way God defines it, is always exclusive and devoted and committed and sacred. That's what true godly love is. Godly love is exclusive. That's why you, if you love your wife in the way that God loves, said that we should love your wife or your husband, it is an exclusive relationship. It is a sacred relationship. We got any Ranger fans in the room? Not after last night, but the night before was great, right? Let me use just an illustration with the Rangers fans. God does not want to be a pinch hitter in your life. And here's how we usually do God. Hey, I tell you what, Jehovah, you go sit on the bench. You're not a part of my regular lineup. You go sit on the bench for a while. And if I need you, I'll call you. And when we get into that pinch and we say, hey, Jehovah, come here, quick, hurry. I need a home run in my life. Are you with me? So get up there at the plate and do your thing. And then once you're done, go sit back down on the bench. That is the difference between a covenant relationship and a convenience relationship. God only does covenant. He's in the lineup every day of your life. Matter of fact, he's not in the three hole or the four hole. He bats in every place. He's swinging the bat every time the ball is pitched. That is a covenant relationship with God. That is what it means to have heaven coming down. But if God's a pinch hitter and you only, you only use him like, like a, a, a genie in a lamp, you're living hell up. Let's talk about the other side of that. Look at verse 5. Don't you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? But He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, you are 
Who are you to judge your neighbor? Here's the wisdom that comes down from heaven. This is the harvest of righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 17. This is the kingdom of righteousness. This is heaven coming down. And James says, when you are living this heaven coming down life, you're going to recognize two important things about your Lord. You're going to to see that He envies intensely and that He gives grace to the humble. Can I just say, praise God for that. You're going to experience His intense jealousy in your life and you're going to experience His immense grace in your life as you begin to pull heaven down. From the very beginning of you having children, what do you teach your kids? You teach your kids to share. Share your toys. Share what you have. When kids got share your things. Can I just tell you, the God that you serve does not share very well. There's two things that God will not share. He will not share His glory, and He will not share you. Isaiah says, in Isaiah chapter 42, he says, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. In other words, I will not share my position as the king of the the universe and I will not share those who worship me. I won't share my praise. I won't share my worshipers. I won't share my position. I won't share my glory. Exodus chapter 34 says that God is a jealous God. He doesn't like people coming in on him. He's a jealous God. God does not want to share you with someone else. You know, it'd be really weird if I sat down at my dinner table and there's a place that I always sit. I always sit at the head of the table. You know, I sit there because that's just kind of where everybody wants me to sit. You know, most of you guys, you do the same thing. People kind of make room. Where are you going to sit? Well, there's your plate, babe. Sit at the head of the table. You know, it would be really awkward if I was in the kitchen fixing my plate And Shannon and the kids, they all go and sit down around the table. And as I walk out of the kitchen into the dining room, there's some other dude sitting at the head of the table. I'm like, whoa, fella. And I look at Shannon and the kids and I say, what, what, what's going on here? Oh yeah, well, you know, he, he, he was just stopping by today and we just thought we'd have him sit right there. You can go back in the kitchen. That would be awkward. It would be really weird. I'm like, look, that's my place. No, no other person can sit. That's my place. And it's the same way with God. God says, there, that is my place. Why are you letting that in there and sit there? When you live hell up, what you're doing is you're putting hell in God's place. You're using life. You're using material things. You're using other people, and you're putting them in God's place. And God says, wait a second, that's my spot. I don't share my spot with any, I don't share my glory with anybody. I don't share my place with anybody. I'm a jealous God. He values his place. He says, but he gives grace to the, here's the key word, to the humble. I'm glad that God gives grace because if it weren't for grace, none of us would even be here today. We'd have no reason to be here. He gives grace to the humble. You know, the dominant motif of hell is pride. You know, Satan fell because of pride. And in our day and time, we have pride parades when we should be having pride funerals. 
Now, before you check out, let me hear, hear what I'm having this. I need to say. In our culture, in a hell up culture that we live in right now, pride has become a virtue. Pride has never been a virtue. God has always seen pride as a vice because the scripture says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We think pride is something to have and to, and to glorify and to, be, and to be exalted. But let me tell you something. Pride will keep you from God and pride will cause all types of fights and quarrels in your life. The reason why you fight and quarrel is because you allow pride to take over and you want to be the one who is right. And here's the great thing is that God gives grace to us in the form of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit works on our hearts to soften our hearts so that we can say these words... I'm sorry, it's my fault. That's what humility says. Humility says, you know what, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And grace always flows downhill in the direction of humility. So let me wrap this up. In chapter 3, he talks about these series of qualities, but look at in chapter 4, he talks about these series of commands, and he does several of them. The first one is verse 7. He says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Anybody ever played follow the leader? Or Simon Says? Yes. Any of you kids ever played Simon Says? Yes. Kids, who is our leader? Who's the leader? It's not Simon, by the way. Who is the real leader of our lives? Who is it? Who is it? Come on, I can't hear you, kids. That's right, God. Jesus is our leader. And that's what it means to submit ourselves to Him. We allow Him to be the leader. He's the leader of our life. If He says, let's go this way, we go that way. If He says, do this, we do that. If He says, stop, we stop. He is our leader. Sometimes it's a, it's a cooperative relationship where he says, hey, let's reason together. You know, uh, the older kids get, the less spankings they should get. Can I get an amen from all the kids? Some, I heard a kid say, that's not true. <laughs> Pastor, that's just not true. I need to talk to your parents who ever said that. No, I'm just kidding. It'd be kind of awkward. Some of you who have adult children, you're 30 years old. Okay, son, get in my room. You know, Dad, this ain't a good idea. I mean, some of, I know some 30 years old that, that could use a good... I'm just saying, you know. It's cooperative. Let's, let's reason together. Look, this is a dumb idea. But then there is, there is a command leadership. And this is where when we tell our kids and the kids are going to go out there in the parking lot or get close to the road, hey, you get out of the street. You little urchin, get up here in the church. Stay out of the parking lot. Hey, don't touch that, it's hot. Right, there's a sense of urgency, and usually our voice goes up, says, hey, stop it. Right? We do that because why? There's imminent harm coming. When we submit ourselves to God, we submit to his leadership, and God works in two ways. Sometimes he says, hey, let's reason this together. You're, 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 you're close to doing stupid. Don't do stupid. Because stupid, five seconds of stupid can ruin your life forever. 
Remind, you know, I mean, that can happen. Just ask the, American, the uh, Alaskan airline pilot, right? But then there's sometimes when he just looks at us and the Holy Spirit comes and he says, stop it. Don't do that again. That's, that's how God works. He deals with us. You see, you have to learn, and this is, this is in your notes, you have to learn to pick the right fight. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You shouldn't use that scripture on your wife. Resist the wife and she shall flee. Go. Thou wast star banished to the bedroom. No, you resist the devil. Here's what you have to understand, friends. Your wife is not your enemy. Your husband's not your enemy. Your kid is not your enemy. The devil is your enemy. So resist him and he will flee. It's a spiritual thing. It's always a spiritual thing. Ephesians chapter 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and powers and authorities in, dark, in the dark world, against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Here's the thing. Is your life in between heaven down and hell up culture is in the middle of what we call spiritual warfare. We know what it's like to have temptation. We know what it's like to, to want to, uh, to give up. We know what those things are like. That's what it feels like. And what you have to do is you just have to say, nope, I am going to resist hell as it tries to flood my house and I am going to pull heaven down. Right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then I close with this. The Lord will always give you the direction of home. What do you mean by that? He says, come near to God, and God will come near to you. He'll come near to you. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son, right? Everybody knows that story. The son basically said, you know, I want my inheritance now. You know what that really meant? It translated in that culture is that if I want my inheritance now, that means the only way that I can get an inheritance is if you have to die. So basically, you're dead to me. I want my inheritance. I want my money now. And that's what he did. And he took the money and he went out in the world and he wasted it. And everything was fine and everything was good until the money ran out. He found himself face down in a pig pen is what the Bible says. And the scripture says that he came to himself. He realized his mistake. And so he thought, you know what? I have no other choice. I have no other options in my life. The only place that I can go is home. I have no other place to go. And so he picks himself up, nasty and stinky and dirty, and he begins to walk back home because he always never, he never forgot how to get back home. Nobody had to tell him, hey, look, your father's house is back. No, he knew every day where his father was. So he begins to walk back toward his father. And I know that through that prodigal son's mind, he's thinking, you know what? I wonder what dad's going to say. I wonder how he's going to respond. He's going to see my life. I mean, look, I'm a mess. I've got pig poo on me. I've made all kinds of bad choices, bad decisions. I've pulled hell up in my life, and this is what it's got me. I wonder how my father's going to respond. He begins to walk home. And as soon as he gets in with eyesight of his father, the Bible says 
Jesus, who tells the story, says, when the Father sees him, <laughs> he begins to run toward him. He didn't ignore him, and he didn't even walk toward him. He began to run toward him. Now, how many of you grown men in this room have you ran full speed lately? First of all, that's a health hazard for some of you. Second of all, it's kind of undignified. I, I don't want to see all those moving parts because you'd look like a you'd look like a yard sale. Things would be falling off if you some of you tried to run full speed. I know that's me. Try to run full speed in about three seconds. I'm like, dear Lord God, healing. This father, this, this, this dad, he begins to run. He wrapped his arms around that kid that smelt and stunk and he was dirty and he didn't look like much. And he said, oh, son, I've been waiting for you. You're home, you're home, you're home, you're home. Man, in that moment, heaven came down. Heaven comes down. Can I just tell you, I don't care who you are in this room. You might have pulled hell up in your life. You might have pulled it up in your marriage and in your friends and at work or whatever you've done in your past. And you, all you have to do is remember that there is a place called home. It's in between the Father's arms. And He will run to you. And as soon as you begin to raise your head up and you start looking toward home, He's standing right there saying, I've been here the whole time. It's finally time. Come on, son. Let's go in. Let's have a party to your home. Jesus came not for we, for us to live in darkness, but for us to live in light. He came not to live in death, but to live in life. He came for us not to flounder in life, but for us to, to be a, living abundantly in life. That's what the heaven down life is all about. And this morning, I'd like for everybody to just pray with me. If you would, bow your heads. I'd like for all of our uh, communion servers to come and to get in place. With everybody's head bowed and everybody's eyes closed this morning, I want you, before we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made, I want you to deal with some things in your own life. Remember, it comes from the inside. Now, some of you are sitting here today and you say, you know what, Pastor? You don't know what all I've done. You don't know the things that I have done, the things that I have said. You don't realize what's happened in my life. Here's what I want to remind you of. God knows, and that's why Jesus came and died. He loved you that much. He knows. He knows. So as we just in this moment before we are served and we remember the Lord's sacrifice for us, would you just begin to prepare your heart right now to take this table together? Prepare your heart. Say, Lord, speak to me today. You guys just take your positions in front of each, in front of each section. Yeah, in front of each section. Ask the Lord to speak to you. Sydney and Johnny, would you take your position right here? Ask the Lord to speak to you as we begin to take the table today. Would you pray that prayer? Let me pray that prayer with you. Father, I just pray that, Lord, that your spirit right now would begin to speak to everyone's heart. And as they, Lord God, 
are reminded of the sacrifice, Jesus, that you made for them. Lord, let them also be reminded of the great grace that comes, Lord, to those who are humble. Lord, the forgiveness that comes. Lord, you may, friends, listen, you may have pulled hell up into your life. God doesn't write you off. He says, come home. Come home. And we'll make it all right. Come to the table. That's exactly the first thing that the father did when he got that prodigal son back. They'd started a feast set at the table. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to sit down at the table with the Lord. I'd like for everyone, if you would, to stand all across the room. Parents, if you don't mind, make sure you help your kids as we are served today. Thanks for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this ministry, we want to encourage you to share it. And if you don't have a church home, come join us any Sunday at 1030.